going to continue in our series from the book of Exodus. This is our 12th week as we're walking through the book of Exodus. And the title of our message this morning is One True God, Personal and Particular. We're going to talk about what that means, that he is both personal and particular here today. If you have your Bibles or you want to use a pew Bible in front of you, turn over to to Exodus chapter 8. I think that's around page 58 there in the pew Bibles to help you get there a little faster. And as we come back into the narrative today, we've been looking at, we've reached the point where we're talking about the plagues. And and I don't know what your, all of your church backgrounds are. Maybe some of you are, are very familiar with what happened there. Maybe some of you just have a little bit of familiarity, but I'm sure you've heard of the 10 plagues that God poured out on Egypt. And that's where we are. We're right in the middle of beginning to look at those things. And so I want to remind us as we get into that of the plan, the purpose of God behind the plagues, behind these great displays of power that we're looking at, and why these things are important set in the context of Scripture. Leading up to the events we're talking about in this series, we found that God revealed himself personally to a man named Moses, who had been chosen to represent and deliver the people of Israel. And Moses is is coming to this particular family who comes from a man named Abraham, a man that God had chosen back in the book of Genesis, the book of beginnings. He was a a common man. There was nothing special about Abraham, that God should love him and choose him more than anyone else. But God did. God set his particular love upon Abraham and said, from you, I will bless the entire world. And Abraham's family line starts out pretty rough. The people who follow Abraham and Abraham himself don't live these perfect, super spiritual lives that we would expect of someone chosen and particularly loved by God. They're actually quite messed up and sin over and over and over again. And yet God says that he will be faithful to his word. He knew how broken they were. He knew how sinful they would be. And yet he chose to remain faithful to his promise and shows them mercy and grace over and over and over again. And so by the time history reaches the book of Exodus that we've been studying for these 12 weeks, the people from Abraham's family have moved to Egypt. And over a period of 400 years in Egypt, they've grown to a pretty large people group. And unfortunately, though they came in free and respected and and at the invitation of the king, the Pharaoh over Egypt, 400 years later when we find them in Exodus, they're slaves. They're being exploited as laborers by the rulers there. And at that point is when God chooses this man, Moses, to be his special messenger, his representative, who will now come and lead the people back to worshiping God truly and to be redeemed and saved from the bondage of Egypt. And God reveals amazing things to Moses and through Moses to all of the people in Egypt and Israel. One of the incredible things God reveals to Moses is his name. At the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3, God tells Moses that he is Yahweh. You'll see this in your Bible rendered in the capital L-O-R-D, Lord. It's kind of, as I explained to the kids a few weeks ago, kind of a code word for Yahweh, this name of God that the, the Israelite people thought was so holy they shouldn't pronounce it. And so in English, we've followed that tradition of substituting Yahweh with the Lord. But in this series, and as I read the scripture to you, I'm bringing out that name, the covenant name of God, Yahweh, when that is what was written originally in the text. The name means I am. And what I am means for God is it means he's unchanging. It means he never forgets his promises. He never fails to do what he says. He's always in control. He's eternally faithful. He is holy and set apart because he alone is the one true God. And all throughout God's messages to Moses, all throughout everything he's revealing through the time of the Exodus, 
God makes clear that his plan is what is unfolding. He knows what is taking place. He's in control of all of it. And one of the things that's so disappointing and so hard for the people to grasp and wrestle with is how Pharaoh continues to oppose God despite his mighty displays of power. But God had told Moses to expect this. He said, Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, will have a hard heart. He will not comply until my mighty hand, says God, will compel him to do so after I have done all the signs in Egypt that I intend to do. So I've said this before as we've gone through this series. What we need to understand is by the time we reach the 10 uh, plagues here, we're not looking at some some type of trial and error on the part of God. This isn't God going, okay, I know one of these things is going to make Pharaoh let my people go. Let me, let me keep putting a key in and turning the lock to see if that's the right one. No, this is God's plan to unleash all of these plagues in their full entirety against Egypt so that they will know how powerful, how mighty, how glorious he truly is. And also so his people will learn how personal and particular his love towards them is. Now, there's a lot we can unpack from each one of these plagues. Each, each plague could be a, a, a week of this sermon series in and of itself. We're not going to do that, though we're taking them kind of in groups. And so last week, we looked at the first three plagues. We said, what we see in the first three plagues is how God proves his power over idols, all kinds of idols, all these false deities that the Egyptians worshipped. God takes specific aim at them. They're symbols he uses to demonstrate yeah, the, the frog queen goddess Heket. She's nothing compared to me. You want to worship a frog? Here's thousands and thousands and thousands of frogs and just sends them all over the land, right? So he's doing this, systematically destroying every bit of confidence anyone could ever place in an idol. And he does that all throughout the plagues. And we could see that through the next three plagues that we're going to look at today. But I want us to focus on a different point. Last week, we saw God's power over idols. And yes, that continues through as a theme, but there's another theme here that I want us to pull today. And here's what I want us to see. God displays his personal and particular care for his people, even in the midst of powerful judgments upon his enemies. Good. Poor guy. (laughs) So let's pick up with the fourth plague. Start in Exodus Chapter 8, verse 20. Exodus chapter 8, verse 20. Poor guy. There we go. Got it out. Oh, praise God. I know. It's okay. He's fine. If you have your Bible, look at Exodus chapter 8, verse 20. Then Yahweh said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourself to Pharaoh. As he goes out to the water and say to him, Thus says Yahweh, Let my people go, that they may serve me. Now this fourth plague that we're looking at here begins, this is the sixth time this simple, clear command is repeated to Pharaoh. Let my people go. There's no confusion here. There's no lack of clarity about what Pharaoh is supposed to be doing or about the reason why God wants his people to be set free. Understand, God intends for his people to serve him and him alone. That's the reason God wants his people out of Egypt, free to worship him, free to obey him, free to follow him, so that they can follow him and him alone. Because God is not one God among many. He's not interested in having the, the loyalty and the service and the worship of his people just sometimes. 
Our God is not the, the ruler over certain aspects of life who understands, well, life's big and, and there's lots going on and you need to balance your worship and service of me with all these other things that are going on. No, Yahweh declares plainly and simply he is the one true God. There are no rivals to him. There are no others that are like him. He is the sovereign ruler over every single moment, over every single part and aspect of our lives. And not just our lives, but over this entire universe as well. He's God over all of it. Nothing is outside of his control and his reign and his power. It all belongs to him. Abraham Kuyper, the famous Dutch theologian in the late 1800s, early 1900s, famously and very rightly said, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. Everything is his Everything belongs to him. Every moment belongs to him, is to be for the worship of him. He's literally over everything, no matter whether people acknowledge him to be over them or not. The reality is that God does not intend to share his people with any so-called God that they may want to worship. And here in Egypt, at the time of the Exodus, God's people are called not to serve and worship Yahweh and Pharaoh, not to worship and offer sacrifices to Yahweh and Osiris or Heket or any of the other false gods of Egypt. He wants them fully focused upon him and him alone. And today in our world, God's people, many of us in this room, are called to understand the same thing. Our God does not want us to worship him and any idols in our life either. We can't worship God and our jobs. We can't worship God and money. We can't worship God and our reputations or our images. We can't worship God and our preferences and our comforts. We can't worship God and the ideals and values and worldviews of the secular culture around us. It's either fully we worship God or we do not worship him at all. He will not share. The worship of anything other than God is what the Bible calls sin. What is truly cosmic treason against the one true and rightful king and God. And that act of worshiping anything other than him deserves judgment, deserves punishment and condemnation as he demonstrates to Pharaoh in the time of the Exodus. Look at verses 21 and 23. But if you will not let my people go, behold, I will send a swarm of flies on you and your servants and your people and into your houses and the houses of the Egyptians shall be filled with swarms of flies, and also the ground on which they stand. Verse 22. But on that day I will set apart the land of Goshen, where my people dwell, so that no swarms of flies shall be there, that you may know that I am Yahweh in the midst of the earth. Thus I will put division between my people and your people. Tomorrow this sign shall happen. So here, this time, not only is the plague foretold, as Moses has done already with Pharaoh, said, hey, if you do not obey, here's what God will do, and then God does it. He says, this time, swarms of flies will cover the land, just like the frogs had, just like the, the gnats had in the last plagues. But God here specifically says what will be different about this plague, starting here, going forward, is that my people, who are living in the land of Goshen, which is right in the middle of Egypt, it's not like they're, they're way far up away. They're right in the middle of Egypt. All around them will be these swarms of flies, but they themselves right there in the land that they dwell, they will be protected. No swarms of flies will invade them. You will see my particular and personal power in how I afflict the Egyptians, my enemies, 
but deliver and protect and care for my people. God's people will be spared and treated separately from his enemies. That's what he declares here. And this principle plays out not just in the book of Exodus, not just with this one plague, but in eternal reality for us as well. It's very important for us to understand what takes place here. And in the plagues to come, especially the final one, you see this division being made between God's people and those who are his enemies because this is at the heart of salvation. God chooses to be merciful and spare his people from the consequences of sin because of his grace alone. As I've pointed out so many times before, we have to understand that and we have to believe that because it truly is the only hope. All of humanity enters into this world sinful. David in Psalm 51 laments the fact that from the moment of our conception until our death, every single human being is sinful and in need of God's forgiveness and mercy. Paul, in his letters, particularly in Romans and Galatians and Ephesians, makes incredibly clear that what you and I deserve is judgment. We deserve eternal wrath because we are by nature enemies of God. We're at war with him, a very ineffective, inefficient war. But nonetheless, we're at war with him in our fallen, sinful nature. And as we concluded last week in the sermon, if you've heard that message or were here Jesus said in Luke eleven twenty three, the reality is the stakes are so high that the standard is you're either for him or against him. There is no middle ground. There is no half-hearted, part-time, external-only type of membership in his kingdom and his people. So I've repeatedly stressed this to us, just showing up to church when we don't have something better to do, just being here on holidays or times for special events, Though it's a great place to be, we're glad to have people in this place. But if we say we're his people and we only do it that way, or we, we only read the Bible when there's nothing good on TV or nothing new on social media, or we only pray when that's, you know, we've tried everything else, and I guess, why not? We'll give God a shot. If that's our attitude, if we're just playing at Christianity, if we're just claiming it as a title without the internal reality being our hearts are truly humbled before him, our lives, we desire for them to be submitted to God's rule in all areas of our life, it's not enough. And it won't save anyone in the end. Jesus makes this really clear in Revelation chapter 3 with those he calls lukewarm. He says those who are just lukewarm, plain, pretending at this thing, you will be cast out. You will not be welcomed into the kingdom because you are not my people. The stakes could not be higher. Our starting place is one of complete despair and hopelessness on our own. And that's true of all of us, no matter what family we grew up in, no matter what kind of background we have with church, no matter what morality we've, we've kind of adopted from the culture around us, we are all sinners who are desperately wicked in our hearts, enslaved to sin inwardly, who need God to save us because we cannot save ourselves. But this is where the gospel becomes so beautiful against the darkness, the bleakness of our natural situation. The gospel stands as this light of a beacon, this hope for us. Salvation is the work of a merciful, all-powerful God who sets his divine love upon people who are unworthy, who do not deserve and cannot earn anything from him. He does it all for the glory and worship of his name because of his grace. Salvation is all because of God's grace, not our worth. And that's good news because you and I aren't worthy of it. So here in Exodus 8, we see God sets his love upon his people. He demonstrates his power 
and his love for them in how he conducts this plague against those who oppose him, while at the same time demonstrating his mercy and loving kindness for his people as he protects them. God does treat his people differently. He spares them mercifully because of his love and grace. He sets them apart. He protects them particularly from the plague. By his choice, right, in the text, it said, I will, not the Israelites are going to build up some some great nets and keep the flies out. He said, I will separate between my people and your people, Pharaoh. And as he warned, the fourth plague falls upon Egypt just as God said it would in verse 24, we read then throughout the land of Egypt, the land was ruined by swarms of flies. There's a little bit of uncertainty as to precisely what type of insect these flies were. The the Hebrew term that's used here in the original language is not limited to just house flies. It could refer to several different kinds of flying insects. Very likely, these were mosquitoes or some kind of biting, stinging insect. A number of ancient sources going back many Many hundreds of years, including the Septuagint itself, indicates these were what they called dog flies, blood-sucking bugs that tormented both men and beasts. In Psalm 78:45, as the psalmist is reflecting on what has taken place all those years before him, it's explained God sent among them swarms of flies that devoured them. The Bible says these insects were eating the Egyptians alive which suggests they were, of course, of the biting variety, right? As annoying as houseflies would be, mosquitoes seem a step worse, (laughs) right? I mean, here we are in the summer, and we have some experience with insects like this around these parts, don't we? Part of living in this broken, fallen world means that even when we get these beautiful nights, as we've had the the last uh, week or so, we've gone out, maybe you've lit a fire in the backyard, you've sat down, you've got your favorite beverage, and you're in your chair, and what also joins you are mosquitoes, (laughs) right? And they're annoying. Thankfully, we don't have the 30 to 35 different varieties of mosquitoes that exist in Alaska, where my my wife is from. The joke there is that the mosquito is actually the state bird, partly due to how widespread they are. They're, They're everywhere, but also due to the size. We don't have the snow mosquito, which can be and is typically larger than a bumblebee. Can you imagine a mosquito of that size? And, there's, and not just like, hey, there's the snow mosquito, right? Like, they're all over the place up there. Quite crazy. We don't have that, thank the Lord. But regardless of how big or small these, these insects that God sent against the Egyptians were, it was all a testimony to God's power. Because God's able to use even the smallest creatures to have tremendous destructive force. I mean, he showed that with the gnat or the lice of the previous plague. And he shows here not only his power to use something small with great consequence, but also that he has personal power over these things. Because while they're everywhere, on the people, in the homes, on the ground, all around the Egyptians, none of them are in Goshen among God's people. And that's amazing power that God has. So the next time maybe you're outside, you could pray to the God who can keep mosquitoes away from his people. And perhaps he will mercifully answer that prayer because he certainly has the power and ability to do. He demonstrated that here in the book of Exodus. And what we see here, though, is that in response to God's power, again, demonstrated against Egypt, and this time his power showing, I have the power to afflict exactly what and who I want to. I can protect and care for my people while I judge them. Pharaoh does not submit to the Lord. His heart is hardened as God said it would be. So he begins again to bargain to remove the consequences of his rebellion without actually repenting and turning to true worship and service of 
Yahweh. In verse 25, Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Go, sacrifice to your God within the land. Remember, they've been told, let my people go. We're going to leave Egypt. No, 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 Pharaoh says, let's make a deal. Fine, you can worship. Fine, you can offer your sacrifice. But you got to stay. You got to stay. You can't leave. He offers this compromise because unbelievers always want God's people to compromise. Pharaoh offers a little bit, not full submission to God, not obedience to what he's been told to do, just wants to get the consequences removed, wants Moses and Aaron to compromise their faith, not, not, get, not stay fully obedient to their God, just kind of accept the deal. And Moses responds in verses 26 and 27. Moses said, it would not be right to do so. For the offerings we shall sacrifice to Yahweh our God are an abomination to the Egyptians. If we sacrifice offerings abominable to the Egyptians before their eyes, will they not stone us? We must go three days' journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to Yahweh our God, as he tells us. Moses won't accept the compromise. And he responds with two key points that we need to understand because they're true of us today too as God's people. First is that the right worship of God will be offensive to unbelievers and they will hate us for it. And second, we must worship our God as he tells us. Now Moses was certainly correct in his day what the response would be in Egypt. The animals that they were going to sacrifice, that they were going to offer to God, such as bulls and rams and calves, they, they were all sacred in Egypt. They were symbols of these false Egyptian gods. So bulls were sacred to Apris, cows to Isis, uh, calves to Hathor, rams to Amon, so on and so forth. And they knew, Moses knew, if we go out and start slaughtering the symbols, the representatives of the false Egyptian gods, well, the Egyptians are not going to go, well, that's just how they do it, you know, to each his own. They're going to come and kill us because they'll see us slaughtering their gods. He knows what will happen. But on a deeper level, this principle is true even in our own day. It's true in every age as God's people try to follow him. Instead of worshiping the idols of the cultures they live in, the culture will respond with hating us. In America and much of the world today, the idols of our culture include things like affirming the LGBTQIA agenda, the, the perverse celebration of murdering babies through abortion, the rising threat of the twisted worldviews of critical race theory and intersectionality. These things define the culture all around us, and Christians who remain firmly committed to God and worshiping Him and viewing the world through the lens by which He gives us in the Scripture, by the things He says are true and right, we are hated and we are mocked and we are offensive to the world around us. And sadly, tragically, many who claim to be Christians will compromise. And they will take on the worship of those false idols so that the culture will accept them. People will begin to twist scripture, reject the truth, the authority, the sufficiency of the word. They'll abandon the historical beliefs of God's people and they'll create a new religion. They'll use the language of Christianity but realize it's not truly Christianity when they do this. The theologian J. Gresham Machen was right 100 years ago in his book when he argued that Christianity and liberalism are two entirely different religions. There's not conservative Christianity and liberal Christianity. There's truly Christianity and liberalism, a whole different religion that has just taken our language and pretends to be what we are. Those who compromise and take on the worldviews, the idolatry of the culture we live in are no longer truly Christians. They're living in a new religion, using our language but worshiping false gods that will not save them. And this is the second point that Moses makes, how important it is for us to worship God properly. Moses says God's people must worship him as he tells us. 
That means believing all that he says in the scripture. It means obeying all that he decrees and commands of us. It means serving him as he tells us to. Not partially, not in a modified form, not taking on the culture perspective and, and giving into their demands so they will like us, not trying to worship him and something else. No, he alone is the true God, and we must worship him as he tells us. This is why, as Christians, we have to be careful about our lives, watching our lives and our doctrine. We have to be careful about what we do, about the books we read, the things we believe, the songs we sing, the doctrines we teach and hold to. We, when we veer off from the truth, what is found in Scripture, when we leave this and take in something else, then we're not worshiping the true God anymore. We are called to worship God as he tells us, which means obediently and without compromise. God's standard is particular because he is holy and he is pure. Compromise is always a threat to us in every age of believers in every part of the world because it's always what unbelievers are seeking to draw God's people towards. Pharaoh tries the tactic here in response to the fourth plague, but Moses will not accept the compromise. He agrees that he will pray to God that, that this plague would end so that God can demonstrate he has the power not just to start plagues, but to stop them as well. And he does in verses 31 32. Yahweh did as Moses asked. He removed the swarms of flies from Pharaoh, from his servants, from his people. Not one remained. But Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also and did not let the people go. Look at Chapter 9, verses 1 to 4. Then Yahweh said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go, that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let them go and still hold them, behold, the hand of Yahweh will fall with a very severe plague upon your livestock that are in the field, the horses, the donkeys, the camels, the herds, and the flocks. But Yahweh will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt, so that nothing of all that belongs to the people of Israel shall die. So again, this is a mighty move of the Lord demonstrating his power to distinguish between his people and his enemies. Who is impacted by this judgment and plague will be his enemies, his people, their possessions will all be spared. And there's specificity noted here with regard to the, to the livestock. Notice that phrase that, that I read. It's all that are in the field. It's important to note that because Historically, what we, what we know here is that animals in Egypt, during the time when the floodwaters begin to rescind and the fertile lands become available for grazing and for growing crop and things like that, what the Egyptians would do is they'd rotate their livestock between out in the field and in the stable. So at any given time, you would have about half, maybe a little bit more of the livestock out in the fields and the other half was in the stables. It just didn't have the land. It wasn't Missouri, where you can just run them out, you know, everywhere, green stuff, no matter where you look. We're, we're talking about Egypt, right? So there's limited amount of land. So some are in the stables, some are in the fields. The ones in the fields that are judged. Now I point this out because the next two plagues, the sixth and seventh plague, mention how God, again, impacts the livestock. And some skeptics will claim, well, I thought God sent a plague and killed off all the Egyptian livestock right here in, in this one. No, he killed those in the field, the remaining ones that were in the stables at that time, when they go out to the field, they are then judged in the next coming plagues. There's no errors, there's no inconsistencies in the Bible. We simply need to read carefully. God doesn't make mistakes. So again, notice the key point, though. There's a distinction that God puts here between Israel and Egypt. God makes the promise, I will, 
I will afflict my enemies, I will protect my people. And verses 5 to 7, we read, Yahweh set a time, saying, Tomorrow Yahweh will do this thing in the land. And the next day, Yahweh did this thing. All the livestock of the Egyptian died, but not one of the livestock of the people of Israel died. And Pharaoh sent, and behold, not one of the livestock of Israel was dead. But the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people go. The fulfillment of this prophetic promise was clear and undeniable. God judged his enemies and spared his people again. Which leads to the sixth plague, verses 8 and 9. Yahweh said to Moses and Aaron, Take handfuls of soot from the kiln. Let Moses throw them in the air in the sight of Pharaoh. It shall become a fine dust over all the land of Egypt and become boils breaking out in sores on man and beast throughout all the land of Egypt. The symbolism here of throwing the soot from the kiln that's a, that's a furnace, likely the exact type of furnace that Pharaoh had been forcing the Egyptian slaves to make bricks in, was also used, this type of soot and this ritual, by the, Egyptians, by the Egyptian magicians to indicate blessing from their false gods. And so what God does here is he turns this symbol of oppression against Israel and blessing of Egypt on its head and blesses his people while afflicting Egypt. He demonstrates his greater power over all idols and over humanity itself here. God demonstrates his power is not only greater than the false gods of Egypt. They can't bless their people if he wants to afflict them. He alone is the true God, and he alone wields power personally and particularly. So for us looking at these three plagues here, looking at what has taken place here, understand these are a foreshadow of the gospel. We must understand that God will deal with everyone personally. Nobody is going to get an out before, of standing before God. Nobody is exempt from his sovereign hand and rule. He is the one who controls all people. No matter what idols, no matter what principles a person claims they held to in this world, he's the one true God sovereign over everyone. So everyone, from the atheist to the Buddhist to the secularist to the Mormon to the Catholic to the true Christian and everyone else in all of history too, they will stand before the one true living God and he will judge everyone. John tells us in Revelation chapter 20 verses 11 to 15, he says, Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, notice, great and small, standing before the throne. And books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. Even the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire, for this is the second death, the lake of fire. And anyone's name who is not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. In Matthew chapter 25, Jesus tells us he's that one sitting on the throne. He is the one who will judge with all power and authority. He is the one who will separate peoples out, personally and particularly, his and his enemies. And no matter whether the person was great or small, no matter what nation they lived in, no matter when they died, no matter what language they spoke, no matter what gods they believed in or didn't believe in in this life, everyone will stand before Jesus on his throne. Jesus, who's Yahweh, the eternal God, who took on flesh and came to save his people through his death and resurrection on this earth, they will stand before him and he will judge. 
And the good news of the glorious gospel is that those who trust in Jesus in this life right here, right now, those of us who will lay down our idols, who will repent of our sins, who will place our faith in him to save us by his grace and his mercy, not because we've earned it or deserve it in some way, the gospel message says that no matter what past you have, no matter what sins you struggle with right now, no matter what areas of your life that you may be ignoring God in and doing your own thing in right now, if you will repent, if you will turn to Jesus and place your faith and your trust in him, he will not treat you as you deserve. He will give you grace and mercy and forgiveness. God's particular and personal love is set upon his people. So this beautiful passage describes then what it means to be saved by the particular and personal love of God. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 to 7, if you're a Christian, should stir your heart. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, has made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Jesus Christ. I mean, if we're his people, if we're saved by his grace, justified by his death and his resurrection because of the love that he has for us, the love that causes him to mercifully draw close to us, those of us who have faith in him, who obey him, then listen, we have nothing to fear. Nothing to fear because he's removed all the condemnation, all the guilt from us. He will save us. But the question that we have to wrestle with is the essential question of last week too. The question you have to wrestle with because I can't answer it for you, only you can. Are you worshiping and following God alone or are you actually his enemy? Those are the stakes. You're with him or you are against him. To be one of his people means you actually have to follow him. You actually have to obey him. You actually have to have an internal love, a desire to worship him as he tells us. If you've created an image of a God, even using Christian language to justify your preferences and your your desires for this life, you're not worshiping the true God. You must worship him as he tells us. You can't live according to your own preferences and your own desires and add him in to that. All you've done is put him on the same level as your idols. So to be clear, we're all going to fail and none of us are going to be perfect in this life because our natures are so broken, we are so sinful. But God does grow and change his people and bring us into conformity with his will as we repent and we seek him and we humble ourselves before him, which we have the opportunity to do right now today. Worship team, if you'll come, prepare to lead us. In our final song, Pharaoh kept saying, I'm going to obey God, but he doesn't. His heart is actually hard towards God. He has no love. He has no desire to serve him. He has no intent to worship the one true God. And the results of the powerful judgments and punishments by the hand of God are clear. Look, Pharaoh is a warning to all of us who would have eyes to see the warning. God will judge. There is destruction that comes from sin. Either it will happen to us in this life as it did to Pharaoh or it will come when we stand before his judgment seat before entering eternity. 
The plagues tell us that God will judge sin. He will destroy idols. And the price of rebellion and hard-heartedness against the one true God is a price too steep for any of us to pay. But these plagues also demonstrate God's kindness and mercy towards his people. Because while he afflicts his enemies, he saves his own. And today, if you've never become one of his people, if you've never repented of your sins, you've never trusted in him, then, then this is the moment. You're not owed another one. You may not have another chance. Today, lay down your idols, repent of your sins, commit to following him. Find that his grace is sufficient. It can cover all of our failings. If you'd like to pray, I'm available to you. The altars are open. If you want to come, you can pray where you are. He hears you right where you sit. We're going to sing together a song well-known, Amazing Grace. And in these moments, you have a chance to respond to the living one true God as his people today. Let's worship him. We thank you for that powerful, amazing grace that you extend to all who would put their faith and their trust in you. Grace that can cause us to move from disobedient rebel sinners to obedient children of God who worship you in spirit and in truth as you tell us. But I pray that there's not a hard heart that would leave this place today. That every one of us would look inwards to whatever idols we may be holding on, to whatever things we may be trusting in or leaning on, whatever ways in which our natural flesh is overpowering the obedience to you. And Lord, those things would die today before we leave this room. That you would be our God, our only God. That we would worship you faithfully and obediently. That we experience your amazing grace that changes lives save sinners, and will impact this world. Use us, we pray. We ask your blessing upon us as we go. Use us, Lord, to proclaim this message to all those around us and begin with us, Lord. Let grace be true in our hearts and in our lives. It's in your beautiful and powerful name we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen.